Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today is our first episode of the year and the first of the decade. I thought, what better way to start than by taking a look back at the music that most inspired me in the past decade, the 2010s. So last time we did the best of the year. This time we're doing best of the decade. Stay tuned. Will there be honorable mentions? That's probably one of your first thoughts here. And, and I got to tell you, there will not. There's just no way to do it. I wanted to have this out New Year's Eve as a little bonus episode ahead of schedule. But to be honest, it took me so long to narrow this down that there's no way. I, I would have to do multiple episodes to give you all the honorable mentions. I mean, it's hard enough to do a year, let alone 10. So with some encouragement from friends, I will say Kelly gave me the idea. She asked me if I was going to do a, a best of the decade. And I was like, no, why would I do that? That would take fucking forever. And then she planted the seed in my head. And I tell my friend Joel, I said, hey, have you got a list of the decade? You're a big list guy. I asked Sarks, hey, have you done that? He hadn't. Joel whipped one up really fast. I was impressed, and I thought, fuck, I guess I got to do this. It's just exciting. It's fun stuff to geek out about, you know. And to be honest, I've worked so much. You know, in years past, when I was cranking out two, three albums a year, I was only working three or four days a week, so 24 to 32 hours. That was it. And in the past couple months, I've been working like 50 hours a week at the day job. So I just haven't been available. I haven't had any time. When I get home, all I want to do is sit down and watch Netflix. And so uh, I haven't been nearly as productive lately. And part of that means seeking out guests. Part of that means sitting down and making these lists and planning this stuff out ahead of time. I have mostly just been able to react to the things that life's throwing at me lately, and whether that's losing people at work or losing people I care about in my life, you know, it's been a little rough, but trying to stay positive and, uh, and, and keep on track with the show and the other show, the Bat Fanatic podcast. I started that a couple months back, and, and we uh, just recorded some more episodes for it yesterday. So it is uh, going strong. I will say that unless I, I get a couple of guests dropped in my lap, I might need just a little pause on this show at the top of this year because, uh, phew, like I said, I've just been dealing with a lot, not a lot of free time lately. So there's a few people on my list I still want to reach out to, but if I disappear for a little while, bear with me while I get the uh, inspiration back to crank out more content. Last year was our biggest year in terms of having most episodes, most consistency. And that's a big thing for me. We also had some really amazing guests and I want to keep that up for you. I don't want to just do it for the sake of doing it. You might go, well, why the fuck are you doing two solo episodes in a row? Because eh, this is kind of the fun shit I started this show to talk about. So here we go. Without further ado, as they say, without any more bullshit, except for that bullshit and this bullshit about that bullshit. Here are my favorite albums of the decade. 
Now, first of all, this is a little arbitrary. It's very hard to rank subjective art, especially in different genres, different styles. For the most part, the way that I was able to do this is because there's a lot of things I listen to a lot. I listen to a lot of Amy Winehouse and John Mayer and other things that did not make this list. But I put a great deal of value on things like replay value, as well as direct influence, inspiration. Are these the things that made me get in the studio and write songs and record? And I could tell you that everything on this list inspires me to play music. And so that was a big part of it. I took this as a musician. And so as much as there are other great records that I've listened to a lot, these are the ones that I listened to a lot and also had a great deal of say. They informed some of the music that I made in my most productive decade as a musician. So coming in at number 10, the only way to do this was to do a tie. I had a list of 12. I ended up cutting two and then adding one. And then there was just no way to get it down lower than this. So number 10 is a tie. I know both of these people. They're both really superbly talented veteran MCs. The first of which is B. Dolan, Fallen House, Sunken City. In 2010, one of my best friends, Gabe, uh, a.k.a. Webb from The Illusionist and Dusted Temple, we worked together, we were in The Illusionist together, and, and we would go get lunch at this burger place, and across the street was House of Records. And we would go there on Fridays and just kind of unwind and take a long lunch. And one day we're digging through the racks and I come across this CD of a guy I've never heard of named B. Dolan. And on the sticker, it had the strange famous records logo, Sage Francis's imprint. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And then it said, all produced by Alias. And I recognize his name from some of Sage's records. He's an Anticon producer. And then it said stuff like, you know, taking classic boom bap styles and flipping up on its head or something like that. And it was just the right combination of things that made me go, I never heard of this guy, but this sounds really good. I'm going to give it a shot. And my God, it was just on constant rotation between the two of us uh, at work and at all times. And what it did was not only hit me at the right time in my life, because I had earlier that year, met Idea and Abilities. And I had been rapping as a joke for a couple years just to fuck around because my dreams were dead, my band broke up, fuck it, right? And so I'm just rapping, saying offensive shit to make myself laugh. And we met E&A and they really inspired us and they made us want to step up our game. And so one of the things I did was I, I sat down with Gabe and I said, look, you are always showing me cool shit that is kind of before my generation because we got about 12 years apart. And so I asked Gabe, I said, will you make me a list of all the old school shit that influenced the shit that I like? You know, all the stuff that I probably missed out on. And I did the same thing with my friend Doug, who you know is Ogar Burl. He wasn't even 
making music professionally yet, he had just always been a person who would tip me to, to cool stuff that I would like. And so I told both of them, get me the classics that I haven't heard. Because a lot of the stuff I heard was from the early 2000s and the underground stuff like Rhymesayers, Steph Jooks, you know, that kind of shit. So both of those guys would give me the, the early stuff that I missed. I'm listening to LL Cool J and Big Daddy Kane and, and, you know, move a little forward. And I'm listening to Big L and Raekwon and all these things that I, some of them I had heard the name and never heard, but whatever. That was the time of my life where I was really digging into where this shit came from in discovering guys like KRS and, and just taking it all in. And I was fascinated by it. I love the energy. I love the sounds. And what you have on this Fallen House Sunken City record is a lot of influence from the old school. And again, I picked it up because of the strange famous connection, but you get Sage makes a lot of really kind of offbeat sort of stuff in that he's got the spoken word influence and my favorite record of his is the nonprofit stuff with Joe Beats where it's very boom bap he's dropping a lot of old school lyrical references and this sort of reminded me of that but it was like on a whole nother level it was like he fucking ate slept breathed that old school hip hop shit and yet, it wasn't in a box. It was, <clears throat> it was almost futuristic while being old school. And I don't mean with like synthesizers and, you know, what you would think as like modern, but they were using these like weird bit crushers and delays and crazy effects. And so he's going on these great old school patterns over these great old school drum breaks, but everything around it is really chaotic and it had this sort of like apocalyptic sort of feel about it. And it just, it just checked all the boxes, man. It hit me at the right time. And it was an original twist on that shit that I was just getting into. And so me and Gabe played the shit out of that, and I say it's a big part of the sort of aggressive old school that we evolved on our next couple records, like became Death Proof, blowing up the bandwagon, and you can hear it especially on Death of a Salesman. I don't think that Death of a Salesman would have been the same without B. Dolan and without this other artist that I place equal value on, and that is Blueprint. Now, it was really hard for me to pick the Blueprint record that I thought was quote-unquote best because most of his best music has been released in this time. The one that probably I consider to be my favorite was the Who EP, where he samples the Who a lot in 2010. And that was the first time I met him was when I bought that CD from him. But if I'm honest, the most influential stuff of his was not the last three albums that have come out, Respect the Architect, King No Crown, and Two-Headed Monster, which in that evolution, I think, he really found himself and solidified his style. 
and made his best work. But it's this experimental album, Adventures in Counterculture, that came out in 2011, that I think really got its claws into me, you know? It really spoke to me, and in the same way of high school, I'm listening to Beastie Boys and Run DMC and Sugar Hill Gang, I'm not hearing a lot of mainstream rap currently at that time that spoke to me. You know, I like Tupac and Busta Rhymes, but for the most part, it was just all stuff I didn't relate to at all. And so it was discovering atmosphere, idea, Aesop Rock, Sage Francis. Blueprint was one of the artists I saw live around that time. And seeing these guys do different shit and just talk about their lives and talk about music and things that I actually were into showed me like, oh, you know, underground hip hop is not unlike the underground punk rock that I was listening to. And so Print was one of the artists that bridged the gap for me early on. And here I am as a young MC years later, and I'm just talking a lot of shit, having a lot of fun. But on this record, Adventures in Counterculture, Print got so introspective, so vulnerable, so real. And the songs, there's still some hip-hop shit on there. You know, there's still some braggadocio, some wordplay, stuff like that. But, I mean, if you listen to even the most, like, powerhouse banging songs on that record, like Radio Inactive, you know, it's not the typical bullshit. It's, it's very direct. It's very honest. And that album, even though it wasn't really the style of production that I go for, and if you listen to that compared to, let's say, King No Crown, he was able to evolve that. If you read his book about that record, Adventures in Counterculture, it was a time where Rhyme Sayers got to a certain level where their artists were selling enough records, they had attention. And attention means people know when you're sampling shit. And that could get you into legal trouble. And so he threw out what he was working on and he made this record that was all performance from his synths and stuff like that where nothing on there was sampled and so it's a when i call it an experimental album that's what i mean and again if you listen to king no crown he takes the more boom bap style he had been known for and integrates some of that live instrumentation and that is a more seamless execution of it adventures is a little more raw it's a little more rough, but the content and the flow of the album between songs is so powerful that I, I just couldn't get enough of it. I think that the lyrics on that record are some of the most poignant and truly resonant messages, the some, some of the most long-lasting they stand the test of time, the things that he's saying on this record, and and really showed who he was going to become, the guy that would go on to write 
songs like Perspective and Perseverance and things like that down the line. This was a really good look at uh, an artist who had a lot to say and was finally becoming comfortable with not just being the badass rapper, the battle guy, the funny guy. This was somebody who was able to dynamically take it down a notch and just be. So Fallen House, Sunken City by B. Dolan and Adventures in Counterculture by Blueprint. Absolutely two of the most influential albums of mine in the 2010s decade. And you can hear those all over the music that I made afterward, whether that's Death of a Salesman, which Print was even featured on, or Bears Repeating, and the trajectory that it sent me on. Huge, huge influence. Now, number nine. I might not have quite as much to say about number nine because I don't make this kind of music. But one of my absolute favorite bands in a more progressive, experimental sort of way is The Deer Hunter. And there's two bands. One's called Deer Hunter, and it's spelled like the animal, like the movie with Christopher Walken. And then there's this band that's D-E-A-R, The Deer Hunter. And when they started out, he made, when I say he, it's Casey Crescenzo, and he made three records. He's the primary songwriter and, and lead singer, composer, multi-instrumentalist. And he made three albums that were called Act One, Act Two, and Act Three. And they were one continuous story of fiction. So you've heard a lot of people make concept records, but this band was a concept band. And it kind of blew my mind. And actually, we, we sampled this first record, Act One, on the song The Stage on Death of a Salesman. And it's one of my favorite beats ever. And I listened to so much of their music, and then it seemed like they kind of dipped for a little bit. And in the beginning of the 2010s, what they dropped was not Act Four, as promised. They deviated from the story arc they set up, and they dropped these EPs. Now, I had said, Sarks got me into this band, and I had said that, you know, Thrice was kind of my musically progressive, genre-bending band that I really fucking loved and really got me excited. And Thrice, after the Alchemy Index, where they made four EPs that are each a separate style, instead of mixing them all together like they generally do, after that point, they sort of stopped throwing all the genres together. They kind of found their lane. It was sort of like the Air EP. And Beggars and Major Minor and everything that came after was sort of more on one dynamic plane. And so as Thrice kind of faded out of my top five, the Deer Hunter moved right in in their place because they had really crazy challenging arrangements that were interesting and heartfelt and beautiful. And I don't know, it, it just, it really captured my attention. And so it was weird that I had said this, the deer hunter kind of replaced thrice for me when thrice went on hiatus for a few years and 
faded out of the picture because they dropped a set of EPs called the Color Spectrum. And it's the same basic premise as the Alchemy Index in that each one was a different style, except there were nine EPs. Not four. There were nine, each the vibe of the color. And it starts in black, and it goes all the way through (laughs) indigo and white, I think. And it starts out really dark and even a little electronic, And these songs have nothing to do with the storyline. He's just speaking from the heart. And it was fucking brilliant. They condensed it down into a box set of three full-length CDs, three EPs on each one. And, man, it's just magnificent. They followed that with another, quote-unquote, non-canon record called Migrant that was just beautiful. I mean, it was sort of like they took away a lot of the the progier elements. Again, sort of like Thrice did when they released Beggars. They released a quality album after that, but it was very much more one style. And Migrant, again, had nothing to do with the act storyline, but it was a fantastic album. It was sort of like, you know, I have a love for Coldplay and, and bands like that that are a little bit... Um, melancholy, a little bit stripped down, and it sort of filled that void for me. And after a few years of waiting, they finally dropped Act 4. And Act 4 was everything that we wanted and more, well worth the hype. This dude had gotten, on the early records, you could sort of hear that he had come from like an emo background he had one of those type of voices and so on the early records it sounds very self-produced it sounds like he's kind of trying to hit notes that he can't quite hit you know like uh, strains a little bit almost gets a little whiny at times but the songwriting was so good it was like i you know i don't even care that's not even a deterrent for me but with each album he got better and better and better and with the color spectrum and migrant really mastered his skills as a songwriter as a singer, and as a producer. And Act 4 is a perfect piece of music. I have no qualms with that, saying that it is a perfect album. Not everything on this list would I describe as a perfect album. But again, I don't necessarily make this kind of music. So as much as I've been infatuated with it, I can't quite say that it had influence um, in a direct way. But Act 4 gave us all of the... One of the great things that they do is within the album, because each one's a concept album, you will have little callbacks to previous songs, right? And sometimes callback to previous records. And so they'll throw in a little melody or one little line here and there that brings you back when they're revisiting a theme of a character or a scene or something like that. And this album is full of that and yet expands in such a deep and rich way. The instrumentation is lush and and full and there's strings all over it and, and the musicianship is incredible. The production is incredible. Again, with each album got better and better and better. And then Act 4, and shortly followed by Act 5, which were apparently recorded at the same time, both albums, that one dropped the following year. And 
those together were so good. Originally, I guess it was supposed to be six. And then after five came out, he said something about the sixth one was just going to be like an instrumental reflection or some something. I don't know. I didn't get the scoop on that. But, but four and five came out back to back. And what I believe is the completion of that storyline and did it in such a masterful way. And I talked to Sarks because he got me into this band. And I'm like, what is your Deer Hunter album of the decade? What would it be? I'm leaning towards like Color Spectrum just because of the scope of the project, the fact that they pulled that off. And he's like, it's got to be Act 4, though. I'm like, fuck, you're right. You're really right. Because as much as the Color Spectrum is an ambitious single piece of work, and I strongly recommend the box set because the liner notes are fantastic. Migrant was a great follow-up. Act 5 again, is a perfect closing chapter. But Act 4 has such ambition. It has perfect execution in all things. And it has representation of all previous chapters. And it takes it to the next level. Act 5 is more of a... It feels like an epilogue in a way. It's not as wild and twisty and meandering in that it's you're wandering through this adventure with these guys act four it really has all of the things you want from that band in the wild fucking mars volta shit to the beautiful subtle nuanced songs um you know that are more delicate it's really got everything so my number nine is the Deer Hunter Act 4. I gotta take a sip of water. Jesus fucking Christ. I've got through two and it's 20-some minutes. All right. I was trying to keep the energy up, but I'm talking about all the shit I love, so it's not really been a problem. <laughs> Number eight. Number eight. This is a rapper that I have played with. I have mixed feelings about that experience, but my God, if I didn't listen to the shit out of this album. This is R.A. the Rugged Man, Legends Never Die. Now, The Deer Hunter was a perfect album. I said that. Legends Never Die is not what I would call a perfect album. It does have a couple of moments that aren't necessarily for me. However, there's like 19 songs on this album, and it is a non-stop barrage of just machine gun rap flows in a classic yet current way. It feels like a timeless album. Like, you know, when people give me shit about not liking a lot of current mainstream sounds, you know, like if I hear those trap hi-hats, I'll just fucking turn your song off. I don't, I just don't like certain styles, you know, and a lot of what's, what's popular. And I don't think this record sounds like 1989 or something. It still has a, an energy about it that is urgent and current, but it sounds like hip hop to me. 
at my age, when I think of rap music, this is the shit that I think about, you know? It's not all fucking breakbeat samples and whatever. You know, there's programming and all kinds of different things on there, but there's incredible rhyming. There's turntablism. There's really great features and a complete disregard for expectations while a complete respect for the originators, the ones who influenced us from the beginning. And it's, it's trying to take what they gave to us, creating these sounds back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and taking it to another level. You know, you would see him do a feature on Gift the Gab's next record after this. And, you know, if you think about it in terms of, like, Black Alicious, they're taking that classic style and they're taking it to another level, you know? It's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's trying to push the flows and the patterns and the multisyllable rhymes as far as they can possibly go. And all while keeping your attention with this biting sense of humor. I mean, it's a fucking fun record. It's hilarious. You know, he's got a choir singing, you know, shoot me in the head. I'm a piece of shit. I'm a fucking fat fuck. You know, like I, I, I just, this is my kind of shit. Like if you listen to figures of speech and some of the more shit talking stuff that I'm doing there, it's a lot like my earlier stuff. But part of that was me going, man, I played the shit out of records like R.A. the Rugged Man. And what I like about that stuff is that it's, it's fun. It's stimulating intellectually because my brain is latching onto these, these patterns and these uh, different acrobatic things that he's cramming in there, right? And yet it's super funny because there's always a punchline. There's always a... Uh, some wordplay, there's always some shock right around the corner. And, you know, it's it's like an Eminem record or something. Like, you're not going to fucking endorse everything that he says on there. But, you know, I'm the demographic. When he says, you know, you can gargle my piss or whatever, that's not that different from an old illusionist song where I say, everybody in the 541, you can eat my cum. You know, like, that is my kind of humor. And this record is so perfectly executed top to bottom whether or not i like a couple of you know stylistic choices and then at the end of it in the back half he gives you two really heartfelt personal songs just to show that as much as it's irreverence and shit talking and battle energy crushing rappers He's not a one-trick artist. He's still capable of giving you a little bit of himself in that. And not just that on-stage persona, but talking about losing his dad. Crying on the record, you can hear. Um, talking about his, his family and those who have gone before him. And so there is another level of appreciation as you get to the end of the album. I remember picking this up when I was on the Showstoppers tour with The Illusionist and Carnage the Executioner. And we played the shit out of this record in the van. And me and Carnage were geeking out about 
some of these lyrics. And, you know, he, they would go on to work together down the line. I think they played shows and, if I'm not mistaken, the upcoming R.A. album has Carnage beatboxing on it or, or vocal scratching or something like that. But, you know, listening to it at the time, we just couldn't get enough of it. You know, it was fresh, whereas everyone gets kind of painted in these little boxes. This dude was like kicking the doors like this is what's missing. And for me, it really was what was missing. So R.A. the Rugged Man, Legends Never Die is a fucking legendary album. I hold it in very high regard to this day, even though whenever I have it in the, the deck in my van, if I'm listening to it, driving around, going to work back and forth, and then my wife gets in the car the next day, I always turn it on, and it's that fucking song, Love the Fuck, and the guy on the chorus is like, I'm tearing up that butt, and it's like the dumbest funny fuck around song, and I, every time she gets in, I swear to God, that comes on within like minutes, and I, I tell her, like, I swear, that's not, that's not the album, I swear to God, it's like, that's not why... <laughs> It's not an album full of this. It's not what I'm listening to. It's, uh, it's a good record. Number seven. We're moving a little bit. This is a punk band that I've listened to since, boy, 2001, probably. Something like that. And I remember sitting in my bedroom, my parents' house, learning the guitar solo from the first track on Day of the Death. This band is Death by Stereo. And I was obsessed with Metallica, as I still am, if you look at my YouTube history. But I was also obsessed with skate punk. And these guys made such a perfect hybrid of that thrashy style, breakdowns, shredding solos, and catchy hooky, fast tempos, and all the shit I loved about punk rock. And so it is rare that a band like that, who on their, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, sixth full length, I believe, fucking probably 11 or 12 years after their first, made debatably their best music ever. And that's in 2010, Black Sheep of the American Dream. That album had them reuniting with their bass player and producer, Paul Minor, who had made their first three records and then left as, I believe, he pursued a, a career as a producer. He worked with my friend's Countdown to Life, uh, I think his studio is called Buzz Bomb, named after the Dead Kennedy song. And uh, he's still making records to this day. He did the new Agnostic Front. But the combination of bringing him back in with that band, oh my God. And it was their first record with Mike, who I got to meet on the recent DFS tour. And it is 10 tracks. So it's short and sweet. And it is relentless energy when i am pissed off at work 
I play mellow music all day long because that's what I'm allowed to play in the store. And the moment the clock strikes seven and I lock the door, it's fucking death by stereo. It's sick of it all. It's agnostic front. It's punch. It's that kind of shit. And of all the albums that have come out in the last decade, my favorite hardcore record is Black Sheep of the American Dream. I think the lyrics speak to me. Ephraim has always been a great songwriter. The previous album shifted gears very abruptly in that they would do a really aggressive medley part and then a, not medley, but metal part. And then they would switch into super poppy soaring vocals and they always had sing-alongs, but for something, some reason it didn't quite work on that one record. And if you go back one more, they made this amazing, really metal, metal album. And it was the first one without Paul Minor, totally different vibe. It's called Death for Life. Actually, I sampled it on the album Death Proof, where we used a, a version of their, their logo in the artwork as well. And it was a fantastic album, but it felt sort of like a different band. And so it was really a homecoming sort of sound. It was not just nostalgia, though, because they, they took elements of all the earlier shit and wrapped it into one. And that's something that you only get from an experienced band. You know, a band will drop each album having its own little flavor and once in a while, it's so rare to get one of those that just has fucking everything. It's got the ripping solos. It's got the sing-alongs. It's got the aggression. It's got the lyrics that get under your skin and you want to sing. I remember one time at my old job, they let me play whatever I want because my music was in the back room and you couldn't really hear it from the front. And I had a customer who was being a total asshole and they insisted on coming into the back room and watching me do my job for some fucking it was dumb and I was like fine sure I had enough of their shit I was like whatever and so they followed me back there and what was playing was this album and the chorus just started it's dead silent otherwise and you just hear this these motherfuckers want to see you fail and I am like dying laughing on the inside that you know, some fucking rich asshole looking down their nose at me like, oh, you can't possibly be capable of putting my things in a box like at the shipping store that I fucking worked at. And so I, uh, I got a kick out of that. But it has always been a go-to record that is there for me when my blood is boiling. And so if you listen to Squalor, if you listen to Peril, and you like Dead Fucking Serious, I can tell you with zero question that some of that fire came from Death by Stereo. I've loved them for fucking ever, almost 20 years now, and... and that last full length of theirs, Black Sheep of the American Dream, is a classic in my eyes. Okay? So that's number seven. Number six. We're almost to the top five. Number six is a new band. Ah, pardon me. Number six is a debut record from a band I'd never heard of. And... Much like B. Dolan, I see Hellcat Records 
brand new single from The Interrupters. And I'm like, I don't know who that is, but it's Hellcat. And then it says, featuring Tim Armstrong from Rancid, owner of Hellcat Records. And I'm like, fucking shit, we better turn this on. And the song was called Family. And it's a sing-along ska song that to me was very simplistic, very rudimentary, almost like some nursery rhyme shit. It's like, I got a mother named Mary. And then the gang would sing it back. A mother named Mary. I got a brother named Barry. I got a brother named Barry. And I'm like, okay, what the? I don't, I don't know about this. But it was so infectious that I kept coming back to that video and playing it and playing it. And I really fucking, it got under my skin. And so I wanted to buy the record. And it was only out on digital platforms. And then I'm commenting like, is there going to be a CD? Is there going to be a CD? And then they released vinyl. And in the vinyl, they had a CD just like in a fucking paper sleeve or something. If you've heard me talk about this before, I won't get into it again, but I was like, I, that's not what I fucking want. I'm not going to buy a 12-inch a, a just so I can get a fucking little sleeve of a disc inside. And so it didn't come out. And every time I would see Hellcat Records post about the new Interrupters album, I'd comment on there. You got a link for the CD? And eventually they did. And thank the fuck God, because I have played that album more than oh, almost anything in the last 10 years. If you say to me, we're supposed to go somewhere tomorrow, you and me. And if you say, uh, what's your plan for tomorrow? That song just kicks off. If you've heard this record, you know the first line of the album is what's your plan for tomorrow? Are you a leader or will you follow? And it just, it's the most infectious shit. Every single song is without question, undisputed, catchiest song you've ever heard. <laughs> it's every song is a sing-along. And it wasn't, I can't think of another time in recent history where a band has made me smile like that. It took me back to discovering Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake and some of the great ska bands of my youth because you really don't get a lot of new American bands coming out with that style. Uh, as my, my friend's documentary talks about, ska went everywhere around the world, but it kind of dried up here in the States. And so it was so refreshing. And they were doing a specific brand of it that was, they don't have a horn section. Amy, the singer, has a really raspy, gravelly voice and yet a smile on her face. And the guitar playing reminded me of Tim himself. And if you look at it, he produced the record and co-wrote some of it. And so it sounds a lot like that Out Come the Wolves, Life Won't Wait sort of rancid ska but a youthful twist on it and the following album was the same but maybe better they elevated the songwriting 
and yet they didn't change a thing. The third album, a little more production, a little more arrangement, a little more going on, but debatably their best one. I gave it to the self-titled debut, The Interrupters, because that was the one that started it. That was the one that took me by surprise, and I, I could never get it out of my head. I've seen them twice now, and both times, my face hurt from smiling at the end of the show. I'm a cr- crusty, crotchety fucking dude. Everybody knows this, and their music makes me feel good. And simultaneously, it's, it's personal, it's rebellious, and yet they're talking unity and staying positive when life knocks you down. And I don't know what the intangible thing is about this band, but it just fucking works. And, and it, it works so well for me. It works for my wife. It works for everybody I know who's heard this fucking band is, is in love with them on some level. And I, I, I wish them all the success. I know this last album was big for them and they, they, they got some, radio play for the song she's kerosene and you know it's it took them far and i hope they continue to go far because i mean for them to crank out three absolute bangers in a row you know modern scott classics is is no small feat and i know tim had a big hand in that and it's 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 really amazing you know i i at the very first i wanted to compare to distillers because you know, that was a Hellcat band that Tim produced and had a big hand in because he was married to Brody at the time, the singer. But um, he, I guess, just has a really good ear for talent and, and those, those great, unique female songwriters because uh, Amy and, and the twins that back her up. <laughs> uh, the, I think the last name is Bonova, Bonovas or what, something like that. Those guys are absolute pros, so talented. They're a perfect fit for each other. And, and man, Hellcat really, really got a win with that band. That's number six. We're getting to the top five, Okay. We're going to get back into hip-hop because, again, most of the records on this have a, a great deal of influence in what I do. This, I believe, is the best rap album of the decade, the 2010s. The Roots, How I Got Over. If you've ever been to the studio or seen a video of this place, right above these monitors that I'm looking at, this is a three-foot-by-three-foot cover of this album, so it probably won't surprise you to learn that I'm a big fan. After Idea died, I remember in 2011, I played a show with Sadistic and Christoph Crane in Portland. And outside, Sadistic was talking to some other rappers about who's the best rapper alive. And it obviously says alive, and so, you know, okay, it's not idea, our favorite. So I said, I don't know, Black Thought, because that's what I was listening to in the car, was this record, How I Got Over. 
And he's like, ah, get out of here, right? And in the coming years, he would start to get more respect as one of the most consistent and sharp-tongued lyricists of his time. I think it's after seeing him do some of these marathon freestyles and seeing him finally drop a solo record, he's starting to get a little more acclaim in the last few years. But that record in particular was the one that really drove it home for me. I had been a fan of The Roots as a casual fan. I really liked The Tipping Point because it had some more up-tempo, old-school shit on it. And when you let Black Thought just go off, I'm happy guy. A lot of The Roots stuff is a little more high concept, a lot of features going on, singers coming in. You know, it's all great. They're brilliant songwriters. But... I just like when you let Black Thought fucking rap. So this record is a little bit off of that. It's very much a mellow album. It has a lot of features. It has singing. It has a lot of different musical textures to it. You know, I won't quite call it a a perfect album just because some of the production is very raw, but I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be stripped down. And if you listen to its successor, Undone, I think they take this style and they polish it up a little bit. And it's a very good record front to back. I think it might be a more consistent record because this one varies a bit song to song, but it has such a good flow to it. It has so much heart in it. And again, you have really impressive lyrics, but not being done in a flashy way, still being done to serve the story. And so I'm captivated right out of the gate. Like, Dear God 2.0 is what they call it, because I think it's a reimagining of... uh, uh, an indie rock song. I think they, they sampled the chorus and, and some of it in, in raps over it. But I mean, that might be my favorite verse of, of the whole decade. I mean, just the way that it opens the record is uh, the perfect mission statement for where he's at at that time in his life. And, you know, in the coming years, I've enjoyed seeing him fuck around on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And, you know, I've enjoyed seeing him get a little more respect, being able to uh, step out on his own, Black Thought. But, uh, man, The Roots as a whole really made something unique. And it's got so many influences rolled up into one thing without jumping all over the place. I think the features are well placed. Really my only thing I don't like about it is the bonus track. Baby be a hustler or else you're going to grow up to be a customer. I think that song's kind of dumb, but it's a bonus track, so I won't hold it against it at all. I think that it's it's flawless songwriting from top to bottom. And again, coming out in 2010 at a time when I am finding my voice as a songwriter in hip-hop. 
and wanting to put more of myself on the line, seeing somebody do this in such an expert way was instrumental in taking me to that next level from the sleep rocking, ill is all, 99 years portion of my output to the death of a salesman, bears repeating and beyond where I became a more effective songwriter and I was able to talk about things that were really important to me in my personal life and this album was no small part in that so that is number five the roots how I got over now I'm gonna switch gears again I'll tell you right now if you're only a rap fan that's the last rap album on the list so you can be like oh fuck you I'll turn it off okay I got a couple different styles here in the last four. Number four, another band I've listened to since middle school. This is the Foo Fighters, Wasting Light. And they really kicked me in the stomach when I first heard, excuse me, when I first heard Monkey Wrench, I believe, in middle school, the Mesa guitar tone so cutting in that mix on the color and the shape that that is still one of the records I will reference when I'm recording guitars for DFS and other projects. I've seen them live a number of times. I got to meet a bunch of them uh, the last time I saw them live, which was really, really exciting. But this one album where they went back to basics and they went from making these huge sort of overproduced records to, all right, let's bring the tape machines, let's bring the console, let's bring it back to the house. And so they went to Dave Grohl's house. There's a documentary that covers this, and it's called Back and Forth. kind of covers their history, but it ends while they're making this album. They get their producer, Butch Vig, who had done... Nevermind with Nirvana back in the day, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Gish and Siamese Dream, a lot of great records. And they get him to come out to Dave's house and they make this record sort of in the garage and in the attic and wherever. So it's got a very mm, DIY sort of sound about it. They're using a lot of expensive gear and so it's still sounds good but it also has a little bit of a slap together sound tonally there are harsh guitars and distorted vocals and a lot of shit going on but a band who's typically very dynamic it's kind of the opposite of what i said about thrice and the deer hunter earlier is that they made this really effective, energetic, consistent rock record. You know, and it has its prettier moments here and there, but for the most part, this is high-energy Foo Fighters, the shit that I most love from them. And when it came out, I think in 2011, in fact, I think it came out the same day as Adventures in Counterculture from Blueprint, because they're together on my CD shelf in the living room. I think they must have come out the same day or the same month anyway, and I didn't buy anything in between. 
I remember everybody at my work, Guitar Center, we're all musicians, and everybody was just in love with this record. We were all fighting over our favorite songs, and it was, I don't want to say a return to form, but again, it was one of those middle to late era records from a band that you sort of think has their best days behind them. They put out some classics, then they put out some good ones, but they weren't necessarily classics. And then this record was really inspired. You could tell that not overthinking it and leaving the fancy studios and just getting in a room and playing together live. Not only that, but they brought back Pat Smear, who had recently rejoined the band and brought them to a three-guitar act. And so you're getting Dave doing most of the rhythm parts, Chris Shiflett doing a lot of the leads, and then Pat doing a lot of these more aggressive third-layer extra parts. And so instead of the typical, like we talked about Smashing Pumpkins, they do a lot of guitar overdub layering, but it's all just Billy doing the same uh, not the same, but it's all just Billy doing the different parts himself. And so you get this band with three different guitarists, each with their own tones and their own style of hitting those strings, and it makes for a very live-feeling record. You feel like you're listening to a band in a room or on a stage and no bullshit. You don't feel like it's some overproduced thing with sampled sounds and punches and you know this take merged with that one i'm sure they're doing all that stuff but it feels live it feels real and for that it's rare to have something on that big of a scale the band that big that just makes something that feels like oh you remember when we were a garage band and yet the songwriting doesn't suffer it just feels a little raw, a little rougher on the edges. And I think it works really well for those particular songs. So that is my number four. I'm trying to go a little quicker on these. I hope you uh, are feeling the pace is okay. Number three is a quiet album. This is one that I picked up on the Blank Check Tour with Dead Fucking Serious. I saw online that Fat Records was going to have an open house pop-up sale in their headquarters. And it happened to be the same day that we were playing at Gilman Street in Berkeley. And so we drove over to San Francisco, checked it out. I'm like, shit, I wonder if Fat Mike from NoFX is going to be there. Like, he's, he owns the label? Who knows? I wonder if any other band guys are going to be there. This is going to be really cool. Go there, it's just this tiny little room with all these albums crammed in there from fat artists. And one thing that I was looking for, I should say the one thing I was looking for, was Tony Sly. And he's the singer from a band called No Use for a Name. We've talked about him on the Bill Stevenson episode. We talked about him on the Ryan Green episode. And he's one of my favorite songwriters in punk rock. And one of the first maybe the first Fat Wreck release that I ever owned was uh, Leche Con Carne from No Use for a Name in the 90s. And he passed away, I think, in 2012, right around there. And 
I feel lucky to have seen them live, to have listened to their music for a long time. I had this acoustic split he did way back when. It was with uh, Joey Cape from Lagwagon. And I had recently, when I say recently, I mean relative to this 2017 DFS tour I'm speaking of, I had recently found out that he actually released more solo music that were full-length albums. And so we go to Fat Wreck, and I look through everything, and they don't have any. And so I'm going up to the counter to buy this Rise Against re-release of their first album, and I ask the lady, do you have any Tony Sly? And she says, oh, I bet we do in the back. So she goes to the back and gets me two full-length albums from one of my favorite songwriters who had been dead for five years. And I was ecstatic. I put the shit on when we're driving to Berkeley and I'm crying at the wheel of the car. And we played the first album first in chronological order. It's called 12 Song Program. And as we're driving north out of town the next day, uh, we put on the second album, Sad Bear. And Sad Bear is my number three record. I think that both of them, I almost exclusively listened to as a pair. I remember being again on the Fall Children tour later that year and feeling very homesick and very beaten down about the circumstances of that tour. And this record was like my comfort food. It was my warm blanket. You know, it was my, uh, <laughs> I feel like, a, like the music can be like, if you feel like you're a little kid, uh, inside and you just want your fucking stuffed animal. It's like this This music was that kind of familial comfort to me because it communicated the loneliness that I felt at that time. And I think the lyrics are absolutely beautiful. I think that the production is all very consistent. It serves the song. There's not a lot of extra bullshit. And it is probably the most profound and touching songwriting that I heard in the decade of, of new music, the 2010s. It, um, I really don't know quite how to articulate it, to be honest. I put a lot of time in thinking about the order of these records on my list and how I could best justify their place, but I, I didn't necessarily think about how to express what this album means to me. And I just say that whenever it is that I'm feeling that same way, I'll put this record on and it, it helps me get there. I mean, it had some of the most devastating, simple lyrics I've ever heard. You know, I mean, it sounds like he knew he was nearing the end of his life. I mean, it's, it's fucking hardcore sad shit. I mean, one of the lines off the top of my head was, you know, like it's, it's so sad that all we wanted is what we had, you know, and talking about his marriage of like, you know, the place that his lifestyle had led him, had created this damage and this rift. And now the only thing that they, want this thing that's out of reach is to undo the damage to unsay the things that were said 
and you can't do it. You know, there's a line on there that I think is probably the most devastating where he says, and I just want to say something true. It's a lie that you love me too. My God. And maybe it's doing nothing for you right now, but in the context of those songs and the heart in his voice and the sorrow, it is perfect. And if you want to look at the kind of album that inspires me when I'm working on an album like Daydream, that is it right there. That is an absolute home run. The only singer-songwriter shit I put on my entire list, Tony Sly. Rest in peace, you brilliant motherfucker. Thank you so much. It was the greatest gift to have someone who I thought I would never hear from again. It's like a letter from an old friend. And you could just read it and read it and read it and read it and read it whenever you feel uh, like, like you miss that person, you know? It's a, it's a grief album. It's a mourning album. On some levels, it's a divorce album. And it's a family album. You know, there's a lot of love for his children. There's a lot of love even for his wife that very much sounds like they're separated at that point. Um, and it's an addiction album because he talks a lot about being at the bar, going through another bottle, going through another glass. And this is stuff that really is a part of my family tree and therefore my DNA. And the way that my obsessions get away from me, I always understand and relate to the addict in a song because it really hits close to home. So Tony Sly, Sad Bear is my number three. Here we are, top two albums of the decade. I'm going to take one more sip of my water here. I'm not editing this episode. You've probably noticed. It's maybe not as smooth as they always are. But I'm recording this here on Monday, and I want to get it out to you on time. That's tonight at midnight for the Tuesday audience. So if you've been following this show, I've really been working on consistency. So I'm going to uh, take a sip of my water and not edit. All right. Top two. This is the best punk rock album, skate punk album, prog punk album, whatever you want to call it, of the decade, in my opinion. For me, it gets no better than my past guest of the show, Trevor Riley, and his band, A Wilhelm Scream. Party Crasher follows up, impossibly, one of the best albums of its genre, in my opinion, Career Suicide from 2006, 2007, around that time. And they took a few years off and they took their time and they self-produced this absolute masterpiece that again, it had 
the technical elements of career suicide and it had the melodic, catchy hooks of Ruiner, the second album. It was one of those rare things that captured everything the band was about in a late era album. We've had a couple of those on this list where a band who's experienced and tried different styles here and there is able to look back, trim the fat, and just be the absolute best, most elevated version of that band. And that is Party Crasher by a Wilhelm Scream. This album sounds phenomenal. It remains one of the highest bars for me. One of, if not my favorite mix recorded piece of music, period. I mean, sonically, it is outstanding that they were able to self-produce this and have it uh, mixed and mastered, of course, by Andrew Berlin and Jason Livermore at the Blasting Room. But, my God, the songwriting, they are able to add, at certain points, a new element, which is a little more aggression. There's a, a couple bits where it's a little more screaming. They're able to blend their raspy Nuno and their clean, melodic Trevor voices in such a perfect way. I feel like Ruiner was a very vocal album. You know, Trevor called it his alternative rock album. Career Suicide is a very musical album. There's so much shit going on. In this one, it doesn't simplify. It doesn't pander. It just does all the best things. They don't repeat themselves, but they give you all the shit that you came for. And I really don't know how else to describe it, but it is the perfect opener, perfect closer, perfect sequence of songs. And again, they are shredding, but not metal. They are fast, but not hardcore. They have such a unique and specific style that I can't put my finger on. And if I am to gain any influence from this band, it is their gift for arrangement. Because I play very stripped down rhythm guitar parts. That is my style. I'm more of a, a James Hetfield sort of guitar player, Billy Joe Armstrong guitar player, than I am uh, a virtuoso type who is shredding on tracks. And once in a while, I like the ripping solo. I'll bust out my wah pedal when I'm feeling spirited. But uh, these guys put so much style in every fucking part. It's outrageous. And my hat's off to them. I've got nothing, no criticism, absolutely nothing but perfection, excitement, fun, angry, uplifting. It's got everything. It's fucking got everything. I don't know if I played it on the podcast with Trevor, but I think, I don't know if it's overlooked. Like, um, I, don't, I, I don't know. But a song that, that didn't grab me at first, that now I think might be the best part, is Sassaquin. I think that song is 
absolutely mesmerizing because it's it's got a little more room to breathe and dynamically speaking, but it's also an epic in its own right. And the musicianship is incredible, but the vocals are given a little more space. And if you were to listen to one track from Party Crasher that kind of sums it all up, I think that's the jam right there. So my number two is a Wilhelm Scream and their absolutely modern, classic, perfect fucking album, Party Crasher. We're waiting for number one. Do you know me? Do you know? Did you know before you even turned this on what it was going to be? I'm curious. Send me a message. Comment on it right now. Did you already know what I'm about to say? I just referenced it a minute ago. I said my guitar playing is a little more like James Hetfield. And that's because my number one favorite band is Metallica. And in the past, I'd said that that was uh, the Beastie Boys. And that was true. And the Beastie Boys haven't been a band now since uh, Adam Yauch passed away in uh, 2012, I believe. And it's been a long time. And so in recent years, I've, I've changed. And my answer to that question, what is your favorite band? I think of the current band who has been absolutely killing it. Workhorses, road warriors, guys who have been at it harder than anybody. Metallica. I mean, this is a band that a lot of people might call divisive because there's people who like the first four records, the first five records, but then everything after that is shit or everything after this is shit or this album sucks, so I like this one. You know, there's always a lot of infighting on Metallica posts on the internet. And my respect for them comes from, I, I came into them at a time when they weren't as popular and they were doing sort of a different style. And I, I liked that. And then I went back and I liked the other shit better. And so I was able to have an appreciation for the low points that other people dislike. I'm grateful for that. But what I respect about the band is not just the boldness of doing whatever the fuck they want and trying these different styles, but the reason they're so popular to this day is the work ethic. And if you look at me and what I've done in the past decade, 17 fucking tours, the God knows how many goddamn albums, it's because of looking at people like this and how bad they fucking wanted it. And so they were road dogs in the 80s. When they finally got their shot and they had this breakout album, the Black Album, in like 1990, 1991, they toured the world for three years straight. They went to every fucking market and then they went there again. And they cultivated this familial cult-like following, this rabid fan base that will follow them to the fucking end of time. And though I wasn't part of it then, I would soon be part of it in my own time. And this album, Hardwired, 
to self-destruct. I think it should have just been called Hardwired, honestly. But Hardwired to Self-Destruct came out in 2016. And they continued to tour on it until, I believe, September, about three months ago, when uh, James Hetfield had to enter rehab uh, for the first time since maybe 2003, 2002, something like that. And I don't know if it's just the road life caught up to him or what. I don't want to speculate on that. I hope he's doing well. His music means a lot to me. But think about this. Here's an album whose big break was 30 years ago. They drop an album that is in many ways a return to form. And again, if you're picking up a pattern here, I like when a band can make a fully realized global look of their music in one album. And that's what we've got here. This hardwired album starts out thrashy, meaner and faster than they've been in forever. And it's got more melodic parts. It's got more Sabbathy parts. It's got more thrashy parts, crazy arrangements. I mean, so whether you like Ride the Lightning, whether you like Load, whether you like And Justice for All and the Black Album, it's got fucking all of those things wrapped into one. So they dropped this kind of game changer album. They had been putting on divisive records for a long time. I'm talking since 95. They put out records that have very mixed reviews. And in 2016, this late in their career, the band that formed in 1981 drops another career defining album and tours the world three years long. That's incredible. Once again, they hit every fucking market, and I literally mean every continent on earth, and then they did it again. I missed them on the first tour because they were coming to Seattle, and it was farther than I could afford to go for a show at that time. Then, two years later, I had a promotion. I had a little more in my pocket to spend. They announced a show in Portland. I get to go see them celebrating this phenomenal album that's one of my absolute favorites. I maintain it's the best thing that they've released since the Black Album in 91. That's extraordinary. A band that's been around since 81, dropping their best work in almost 30 years. It's practically unprecedented, unparalleled. The, the work ethic in this band, the grind. And here is one of those moments of it paying off. This is a band that's experimented a lot. They've taken a lot of risks. They've lost as many fans as they've won. They lost fans with the Black Album. They lost fans with Justice because they dropped a music video. They lost fans with Ride the Lightning because they had an acoustic guitar part of Fade to Fucking Black. They lost fans with Saint Anger. They lost fans with the, the mix and master distortion disaster that was Death Magnetic, 2008. They've lost fans for Lulu, the record they made with Lou Reed. I won't even listen to that album. And I'm a diehard. But they've put in the work, and they made something that is absolutely 
legendary. This fucking record holds up with any of the old shit. And if you've seen them live, you know what? Go to Google and look up Metallica set list. There's that site that has set lists for every band every night they fucking play. Just look at any of the set lists. They are so laced with new songs from Hardwired and great deep cuts from fucking Master of Puppets and Justice and all the stuff you wanted to hear. But there are so many of these. And if you, like, go to YouTube. They got so many great live pro shot and mixed videos online. And you can watch full concerts on some of them and see how these songs flow, how they integrate with the old classics. I mean, you would never know that some of this shit was 30 years removed. I mean, it's, it's so fucking good. Fan favorite songs, all-time fan favorite songs, like Spit Out the Bone. That's the mo- most epic closer they've had since Dyer's Eve in 1988. I mean, th- th- it's fucking outstanding. I can't get enough of this album. This is my go-to record. Once again, when I close the doors at work and I just want to fucking ugh, feel something, I put on Hardwired. If I'm super fucking pissed, I'll put on Death by Stereo. <laughs> but man, most of the time my go-to shit is still Metallica. I love their live music. I love James Hetfield's voice on this record. I love the production on this record. It's got the big upfront drums that Lars likes, but they're not thin. They're still bright and present like he started doing on Justice, and he has done on every album since, but they are full and punchy, and the guitars are still well-defined. They're thick, rich, saturated distortion without being soaked and overcompressed. They sound as vibrant as they did on the Black Album. I think it's their best guitar sounds since the Black Album, and yet they're fuller. They're a little thinner back in the day. The bass, Rob Trujillo, is actually fucking audible on this record. You can pick up a Metallica album with a distinguishable bass line, that actually has a growl to it and a little snarl, has some, some attitude in the playing. There's even a couple moments where they give Rob just these quiet parts to shine or a little distorted riff in between. The arrangements are out fucking standing. No band had more influence on me writing Peril than Metallica's Hardwired album. I mean bringing back to that quality they had, more on Master of Puppets, a little Ride the Lightning. Because if you listen to Justice, there's so many, it's almost like a mathematical equation. And I love that. It's interesting, it keeps you guessing. And I'll use bits of that, but there's something about the sprawling epic that they, they give you, when you think the song is done, and they've gone through this big winding solo and all this crazy shit and the extra bridge, then they'll give you another verse. <laughs> you know, it's like, then they bring it back home, grounded again. And the things that they do with the arrangements on this song and the production 
And the performances, again, Hetfield sounds pissed and full and healthy and inspired. The songs are just inspired. And, you know, if I'm honest, I was glowing about this when it came out. I even wrote a review for a, a, a music magazine, uh, Sound Convictions. And I think that in time, I still have a very hard time saying what I would pull out because it's a tight set list. There's not a ton of songs. It's a double album, but there's not a ton of songs because they're just, they're just each long songs. I think it's 12 songs. And there's a bonus track, Lords of Summer, that I feel like would pick up the pace of the middle because they come out really fast and they end really fast. And in the middle, it slows down and it grooves a little bit more. And I think all of those songs do very well work. But I don't know if it's maybe Man Unkind or Confusion or one of those. In the middle, if you sub that for Lords of Summer that we got on the bonus disc, because I got the three-disc version, because <laughs> that's the kind of uh, obsessed I am with this band, then you have a perfect album. So this may not be a perfect album, but it is a, it is a near career best if you think that in the terms of the best shit they've put out since 1991 or 1990, whenever that record dropped, the Black Album. And that is a rare treat for a band that I've been following for 20 years now, since I was about 13, 14. And bought my first wah pedal, and I played the fucking bass distorted wah solo in my school concert band auditorium because I wanted to be like Cliff Burton. <laughs> you know, I'm playing ripping solos on these skate punk songs in, you know, the year 2001 because I'm obsessed with Kirk Hammett. You know, that's just, that's the shit that I've always loved and the fact that they're able to deliver it on this level after this many years is just an absolute gift to fans like me. So that is... My top 10 slash 11, if you, if you get the tie uh, in the top 10 there. Those are my best albums, my most influential, my absolute favorite releases of the 2010s. If you've listened to this show at all, I really appreciate you and the time that you've put in. And I hope to come back strong with solid content and maintain this consistency that we've set up in 2019 but I may need a little pause just to get my bearings and line up a few new interviews so that me and my assistant editor Jacob Weirin can uh, put in the work and get you some real quality on the Take 92 podcast thanks for listening